We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go, episode 119 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, August 10th, 2021, the day after the first day without the Tokyo Olympics. Since those Olympics started, were you okay on Monday with no more Olympics? Did you survive your Monday despite being sans Olympics? Can I tell you something? And maybe I shouldn't tell you this something, but I'm going to tell you this something anyway. I did not watch one second of the Olympics. Not one second. I'm not exaggerating. My wife watched some of the Olympics. I did not watch a single second of the Olympics. And judging by the television ratings for the Olympics, I was not alone in not watching a single second of the Olympics. Although I'm guessing that the time difference had a little something to do with the bad television ratings. But yeah, I just was not into these Olympics at all. Now, I did not not watch the Olympics on purpose. Like I wasn't trying to make some statement or anything like that. Uh, I wanted our country to do well. I'm glad that the men's basketball team got its act together after the 0-2 exhibition start and won the gold medal, but I just had very little interest in the Olympics. I was much more interested in, you know, Washington football team training camp and the national sell-off and the Wizards and Capitals off-seasons than I was in the Olympics. So I don't know if that makes me a bad sports fan, but that's my truth, as the saying goes. I did not watch a single second of the Olympics. And hey, we do have another Olympic Games in just a few months, the 2022 Winter Olympics in China. Uh, I can't wait for that. The entire world bowing down to the wonderful, always honest, and always transparent government of China. Anyway, good to have you with us on this installment of the Al Galdi Podcast, where it is a show jam-packed with Washington football team content. The first depth chart of the preseason is out, what is an unofficial depth chart, and yet it is, I believe, a telling depth chart. We will go in-depth on the depth chart coming up in just a bit. Also, it turns out that Ron Rivera hates the NFL preseason. Who knew? But good for him for saying that. We'll get into that. Uh, Rod on Monday also talking a bunch about his quarterbacks, and I have some things to say about Washington's defense, specifically the notion of the defense not really having been great last season, 
and the notion of the defense needing to take a big step forward this coming season. There is a reality that has to be understood when talking about Washington's defense. I'll get into that in just a bit. Special guest on the show, Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington. The five-team megatrade is official. So now what for the Wiz? Are the Wizards done making major moves this offseason? Where do the Wizards stand with Bradley Beal? And ultimately, are the Wizards actually better than what they were last season? Also, Chase has some good stuff on Beal. Not being exactly thrilled with the hiring of Wes Unsell Jr., as head coach. I'll also talk Capitals. They officially re-signed Ilya Samsonov on Monday. The contract, very telling. I'll explain why. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Darren regarding Curtis Samuel still not having practiced at Washington football team training camp. Although we did have Curtis Samuel news on Monday, the Washington football team on Monday removing Samuel from the reserve COVID-19 list and placing Samuel back on the active, physically unable to perform list. Uh, Remember, Samuel was placed on the active, physically unable to perform list on the first day of training camp, July 27th, then got moved to the reserve COVID-19 list on July 29th. And then on Monday, Samuel moved back to the active, physically unable to perform list. Right, Darren, uh, just a thought. Is it possible that the reason the WFT vaccination rate suddenly jumped a few weeks ago is that Curtis Samuel became genuinely ill with COVID and that scared other players out of their dug-in positions? Uh, Adds Darren, I know nothing and this is just rank speculation. Uh, Yes, this is rank speculation, but that's okay. It's all right to speculate. Uh, I suppose that's possible. I mean, we have no evidence that that is what happened. I do think, though, we can say this. So Washington put Samuel on the reserve COVID-19 list on July 29th, didn't remove him from the reserve COVID-19 list until Monday, August 9th. So I think that's a pretty clear tell that Samuel had COVID-19 as opposed to just having been a close contact, right? Because you can go on the reserve COVID-19 list without having COVID-19. If you are deemed a close contact, you can be placed on that reserve COVID-19 list. But most people who are deemed close contacts and don't test positive for COVID-19 are off the reserve COVID-19 list sooner rather than later. Samuel ended up being on the reserve COVID-19 list for quite a while, right? Again, from July 29th, to August 9th. So I think it's safe to say that he had COVID-19, but in terms of him having had a severe case of COVID-19, we just don't know. You know, maybe at some point we find out something like that, but uh, we just do not know that that was the case. Whatever the reason, Washington's COVID-19 player vaccination rate has soared, and we actually got an update on this on Monday evening. Multiple reports that Washington's COVID-19 vaccination rate among players was at 86% as two players each had received a first shot of a vaccine. So if you are keeping track, it was on July 16th that we had multiple reports that Washington still had a COVID-19 player vaccination rate of less than 50%. Here we are now, and on Monday evening, multiple reports that Washington's COVID-19 player vaccination rate was up to 86%. That is quite a jump from less than 50% to 86% in a little more than three weeks time. Email from Mike P. Writes Mike, just wanted to let you know that listening to your pod never stops with me. I'm now in Hala, Mexico, in the middle of nowhere, but I still stay faithful to my favorite pod, always listening, no matter where life takes me. Atta boy, Mike. Holla from Holla, Mexico. 
Uh, you are truly a loyal soldier in the army, in the underground militia that is the Al Galdi podcast. I appreciate that. We are big in Hala, Mexico. Even in Hala, uh, they download this podcast, subscribe to this podcast. Actually, it's funny. I've been looking at the breakdowns of the listenership of this podcast. We have a lot of listeners outside of the United States. It's pretty remarkable. We have a lot of listeners in England, uh, in Canada, in Australia, in Germany. We have listeners in Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Portugal, Norway, Greece, India, Denmark, and many other countries, including Russia. Yes, Russia. Vladimir Putin may well be a listener of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, I tell you what, Vladimir, comrade, I say to you what I say to everyone. If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, please consider doing so. Doing so costs you nothing. Also, if you haven't already given the podcast a five-star rating, please do so. And if you haven't already written like a one-sentence review or a longer review, if you prefer, uh, saying how much you like the podcast, please do so. That helps out a lot. The next time I check the reviews, I want to see if I have one from a V. Putin in Moscow. Uh, If so, you know what's up. Anyway, let us begin our Washington football team discussion on this Tuesday installment of the pod. All right, so believe it or not, we now are two full weeks into 2021 Washington football team training camp. It began on Tuesday, July 27th. This installment of the podcast, episode 119, is for Tuesday, August 10th. Time flies when you're having fun. Uh, This is a game week for the WFT. Preseason opener for Washington is this Thursday night at the New England Patriots at 7.30. And so there was an extra intensity at training camp practice on Monday. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference. Well, I think a big part of it, more than anything else, is, is we're playing against somebody else. Um, and so we don't want to go there and get, get our butts kicked. We, we want to go out there and we want to play hard. We want to play right. Uh, and we're going to play to win. And so we want to practice that way. We want to make sure the guys understand the sense of urgency, the importance, um, how things are changing. And, and you're right, we, we were ramped up a little bit today. I thought the players, you know, we started slow, wasn't very happy about that. Um, so we threw the offense off and started with the defense, and uh, we picked up our tempo from that point on. So I was, I was happy about that. But that's what we're looking for. When you start getting ready, you know, and, and there's no second chances. Once you get started, you got to roll. And also emerging during Ron's post-practice press conference on Monday was his disdain for the preseason. Who knew? Don Ron is not a fan of the preseason. Good for him. I'm not a fan of the preseason either. It is football, and some football is better than no football, but preseason football isn't real football. The league had been trying for years to shorten the preseason, finally has done so for this year, but you could argue that the preseason still is too long. A four-game preseason was ridiculous, especially when he considered that the teams playing in the Hall of Fame game played five preseason games. Now we have a three-game preseason. Uh, That's more acceptable. That's much better, but a two-game preseason to me would be best. Two-game preseason 18-game regular season. That's what the NFL has wanted. I'd like to think that eventually we'll get there. But take a listen to this. Ron on Monday was asked if he now, as a head coach, has a greater appreciation for the preseason as compared to when he was a player. Not really. Um, It's just a different perspective more than it is anything else. You know, I think there are some important aspects to the preseason. You know, not just the practice, but the opportunity to compete against an opponent. Um, Because I I think there's, there's nothing like true competition. Uh, as a coach, one of the things that I always tell our guys is, you know, we get high on, on, on players when you're practicing against each other. 
Uh, that's because there's no consequences. When you start putting an opponent out there and you start keeping score, now there's consequences. So for a coach, now is the chance to really see. You know, you may have a, a defensive back that makes a lot of plays. And you say, guys, he's doing that. Well, if you look at the tape, you see he's jumping specific routes. No consequences. Now you're in the game time. Now that's what we really look for. It's the same thing when, you know, we do the one-on-one pass rush. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, an end will get caught up on something and he'll just kind of shut it down. Well, in a game, there's consequences because you can see that. Practice a little bit different. Um, so for me, I, I think it's really just perspective more than it is anything else. Um, no matter how I look at it, it, you know, I still hate it. <laughs> so how about that? I still hate it. Ron Rivera on the NFL preseason, quote, I still hate it, end quote. Good for him. You know, I still hate it. Yeah. Uh, Ron then got asked why he hates the preseason. Um, just because it's, it's not the real deal. I, I can't wait for the regular season to start. I really can't. And you get very anxious. I mean, the first couple of days of camp, it's cool because you're seeing everybody again and it's fresh and it's new. And then after a while, it becomes drudgery. Um, you know, you got to remember, um, I played in a little different era when things were just a little bit different. Um, so as a coach, the appreciation of, of, of the good old days uh, is, um, is missed on these young guys because they don't know. They, they, they have no idea what it was really like. Wow, some uh, old man ranting there from Ron Rivera. In my day, things were much harder, but he is right about that. Two-a-day training camp practices back in the day were brutal, much different as compared to the training camps of today. That is true. But Ron, not holding back on his feelings on the preseason. Look, you need some version of a preseason. I get that. It's probably not the best idea to just go right from a few weeks of practice into the regular season, although college football does do that. But we never needed all of these preseason games that we've had. The maximum is what we're just moving to this year, a three-game preseason. And I very much believe we could do a two-game preseason with an 18-game regular season. As I have said, the NFL should have an 18-game regular season over 20 weeks. Each team gets two bye weeks. You cluster the bye weeks into specific portions of the season, so no team has a super early bye or a super late bye. You expand rosters, and you stop with these dopey game day inactives, which have never made any sense to me. That's the way to do this. You'll increase revenues. The owners will make more money. The players will make more money. It's a no-brainer, to me anyway, and I hope we see it sooner rather than later. Nothing is worse than guys getting hurt in these meaningless preseason games. And I get it, right? It's football. Guys can get hurt at any time. But if you're going to get hurt, at least get hurt in the line of meaningful battle. Getting hurt in these meaningless preseason games, to me, is like especially painful. And few things have been worse in the NFL in recent years than what happened with one of our guys, Jordan Reed. How his time ended with Washington was criminal. 2019, Reed doesn't make his preseason debut until the third preseason game. And it was debatable whether he should have been even doing that. But it was like, hey, you know, he's got to play at some point, right? So can we just see him out there for a few snaps? He goes out there. And in Washington's preseason win at the Atlanta Falcons, plays on just nine offensive snaps, suffers yet another concussion, and ends up never playing again for Washington. Reed missed the entire 2019 season, all because of a concussion that was suffered in a meaningless, worthless preseason game. I still can't stand that that is how Jordan Reed's time with Washington ended. So good for Ron Rivera saying that he hates the preseason. You know, I still hate it. Yes, there you go, Ron. See, that's Ron channeling his inner men on films. 
For those of you who remember the comedy sketch show In Living Color from back in the day, Men on Films, or as the Men on Films said it, Men on Films, okay? When the Men on Films didn't like a movie, the Men on Films said, hated it. Hated it. Yes, hated it. And that's Ron Rivera on the NFL preseason. You know, I still hate it. Yes, just like the Men on Films. Hated it. Exactly. Well, Ron Rivera doesn't like the preseason. Nobody likes feeling depressed. And fortunately, a big fan of this podcast, Dr. Matthew Mintz can do something about that for you if you were dealing with depression. So Dr. Mintz is an internal medicine and primary care physician. He is rated as a top doctor by both Washingtonian and Bethesda magazines. If you need a regular doctor, Dr. Mintz is accepting patients in his concierge practice. Dr. Mintz also offers something very special and groundbreaking in the treatment of depression called Spravato. Spravato is a new FDA-approved medication shown to be safe and effective in patients with what is called treatment-resistant depression. You see, while most patients respond to traditional prescription medications for depression, up to one-third of patients do not improve even after two or more medications. This is called treatment-resistant depression, which can be debilitating for patients and lead to thoughts of suicide, even suicide attempts. If you or someone you know is dealing with treatment-resistant depression, understand it doesn't have to be this way. Spravato is a nose spray administered in a doctor's office. Unlike most pills that can take weeks to work, Spravato can start working right after the first treatment. And because Spravato is approved by the FDA, Spravato is covered by most insurance companies. Dr. Mintz will work with your insurance company to make sure that Spravato is approved and understand that for most patients, the cost of each dose is only $10. Yeah, $10, totally worth it to get your life back. And for patients with Medicare, Medicaid, or Kaiser, or with an insurance that doesn't cover Spravato, Dr. Mintz is also able to administer nasal ketamine, a nose spray similar to Spravato, and that treatment should cost less than $10 per treatment, even without insurance. Spravato can only be administered in authorized healthcare settings, and Dr. Matthew Mintz is one of the few physicians in the DMV who is authorized to administer Spravato in his private Bethesda office. Dr. Mintz and his staff will monitor you closely throughout your treatment to ensure your comfort and safety. You can find out more by going to drmintz.com, that's D-R-M-I-N-T-Z.com, and clicking on the Spravato link. But if you, a friend or a loved one, have depression that is not getting better with traditional treatments or medications, there's no need to continue to suffer. Contact Dr. Mintz to find out if Spravato may be right for you. You can call Dr. Mintz's office at 855-646-8963. That's 855-646-8963. And make sure when you call to mention this podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, because doing so will get you $50 off your initial consultation. That phone number again, 855-646-8963. There's no need to suffer from treatment-resistant depression. Contact Dr. Matthew Mintz and tell him that Al Galdi sent you. All right, so with the Washington football team's preseason opener happening this Thursday night at the New England Patriots, we on Monday got our first unofficial depth chart of Washington's preseason. Now, every year, the release of the first unofficial depth chart comes with all kinds of warnings from all kinds of people of, pay no attention to this. This doesn't matter. This is meaningless. This isn't the real depth chart. And on and on the lecturing goes. And yet, and yet, every year, 
a big deal gets made out of the first unofficial depth chart. Now, me personally, I am not one of these tough guys who's going to tell you that the first unofficial depth chart means nothing. It doesn't mean nothing. It means something. The challenge is figuring out how much of a something, okay? That's what's tricky here. How much of a something does this first unofficial depth chart mean? But it's not like Ron Rivera just threw darts at a board and that's what determined this depth chart. The first unofficial depth chart put out by Washington on Monday seems to be legit. I mean, a depth chart reflects most of what we've been seeing at and hearing about from Washington football team training camp. The top four quarterbacks are Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, and Steven Montez. Okay, makes sense. The three starting receivers are Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, and Adam Humphreys. Okay, makes sense. The tight end behind Logan Thomas is Tameric Hemingway. Makes sense. The starting offensive line from left to right is Charles Leno, Wes Schweitzer, Chase Rullier, Brandon Sheriff, and Samuel Cosme. Makes sense. Jamin Davis is the starting Mike linebacker. Makes sense. The starting safeties are both Landon Collins and Cameron Curl, with Landon as the strong and Cameron as the free. We've talked about that. That does seem to be a popular safety alignment so far in training camp, so that's not a shocker. Collins and Curl, each guy labeled as a starter right now. Uh, DeAndre Carter is the punt returner. I've been saying it. I think DeAndre Carter makes a season opening roster because of his extensive punt returning experience and his success as a punt returner in the NFL. Danny Johnson is the kickoff returner. Like, does all of that sound phony to you? Okay. I mean, that depth chart sounds pretty legit to me, especially off everything that we've been talking about and reacting to on this podcast. Now, what was especially interesting on Monday to me was Washington's left guard situation. So we've talked about the competition at right tackle and how that starting job certainly appears to be Samuel Cosme's to lose. Ron, last week especially, had a lot of good things to say about Cosme. And sure enough, Cosme was listed as the RT1 on this first unofficial depth chart. Well, what about left guard? The left guard competition had been looking to be similar to the right tackle position. Wes Schweitzer versus Eric Flowers with the job, apparently, Schweitzer's to lose. Uh, the competition really didn't seem to be that much of a competition. Schweitzer had been getting the bulk of the first team reps, though we on Monday did see Flowers get what appeared to be an increased load of first team reps. Right on Monday on Eric Flowers' first team practice reps at left guard. Well, we've always had been mixing, mixing Eric uh, with the first team um, at the left side. You know, it's what he is. It's what he's really good at. Um, and he's had a good count. So Wes Weitzer, of course, ended up being Washington's primary left guard for the 2020 regular season, and he did a nice job. Schweitzer for the 2020 regular season had an overall grade for pro football focus of 69.0. For comparison's sake, Eric Flowers for the 2020 regular season had an overall grade for PFF of 65.9. You got to remember this about Eric Flowers. The Miami Dolphins basically gave him back to Washington. The Dolphins did not want Flowers after just one season of his big money free agent contract. Washington in late April traded the first of the team's two seventh round picks in the 2021 NFL draft to the Dolphins for Flowers and the penultimate pick in the 2021 draft. Additionally, the Dolphins picked up a decent chunk of the money owed to Flowers for this upcoming season. Flowers was set to get paid $9 million in 2021. The Dolphins and Flowers agreed to a contract restructure by which he got a $6 million signing bonus from the Dolphins. So Washington is only on the hook for $3 million to Flowers 
in 2021. This was a no-brainer of a trade by Washington. Total no-risk potential high-reward deal. But understand, the Dolphins basically gifted Eric Flowers to Washington. And so this idea of Flowers being the definite starting left guard for Washington this coming season, uh, that has not appeared to be the case. And maybe he ends up being Washington's starting left guard. Who knows? But that is far from a guarantee. Uh, The biggest wild card to me for Washington's offensive line is Sadiq Charles. Uh, We're still not sure if he's a tackle or a guard in the NFL. I don't think Washington is sure. He may be both a tackle and a guard. And if that's the case, that's just fine. What we do know is that Sadiq needs to stay healthy. Uh, Sadiq, in his 2020 rookie season, played in one game with one start. He was inactive for each of Washington's first five games of the 2020 season due to calf and thigh injuries. He started at left guard for Washington in the 2019 loss at the New York Giants in week six, but he suffered a reported dislocated kneecap on the second offensive snap of the game, and that was it. He was done for the season. Washington put him on its reserve injured list on October 24th. Sadiq Charles, though, is a talented guy. There was a lot of hype for him upon Washington taking him on day three of the 2020 NFL Draft. Washington, with the first of its two fourth-round picks in that 2020 draft, took Sadiq out of LSU. The concern with Sadiq was that he served two suspensions at LSU, a one-game suspension in 2018 and a six-game suspension in 2019, but he was a really good left tackle at LSU. Sadiq in 2019 started nine games at left tackle for an LSU offensive line that was named the Joe Moore Award winner for top offensive line in the nation. And 2019, right, who was LSU's quarterback? Joe Burrow, Heisman Trophy winner, the author of maybe slash probably the greatest season that any player has ever had in college football. So protecting the blind side of the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback who had maybe slash probably the greatest season that any player has ever had in college football, Joe Burrow, uh, was Sadiq Charles in that 2019 season. Ron Rivera on Monday on how Sadiq Charles is doing so far in training camp. I think Sadiq's come a long way. I really do. You know, there's a lot of little things that he still has to learn. You know, the fortunate stuff for him is the guys that he's behind are some veteran guys that can, he can really learn from. Um, and that's one of the luxuries we have is we got some pretty good depth right now, so we're feeling pretty strong about that. Yeah, and what about Sadiq's primary position? Has Ron decided on whether Sadiq is a tackle or a guard in the NFL? Um, you know, he's, he's learning both spots. Because, uh, you know, uh, we think it'll be really valuable for him. Once we get an opportunity to truly say, hey, you know what, this is what he's really good at, we'll settle in. But right now, you know, having the position flex is probably the best thing opportunity may be created for him. And we'll see. And you heard right there another installment of the phrase that pays position flex. Right now, you know, having the position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex. Sadiq Charles offers position flex, potentially anyway. But yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with Sadiq Charles right now learning both tackle and guard. Uh, You need depth on the offensive line, obviously. Washington, even with the releasing of both Morgan Moses and Jaron Christian, is positioned quite nicely to have some legitimate depth along the offensive line. Because you think about, all right, if Samuel Cosme is your starting right tackle for this upcoming season, that means Cornelius Lucas is your top backup offensive tackle. And he did a good job as Washington starting left tackle as last season went on. So to have Cornelius Lucas as your OT3, right, your third offensive tackle can play both the left and right spots, that's really good. And then if Sadiq Charles is legit, to have him as an option at offensive tackle or at guard, 
that really helps out. And I didn't even mention whoever ends up losing out in the left guard competition, right? So if let's say Wes Schweitzer is your starting left guard, you also have Eric Flowers as a backup or vice versa. Flowers ends up being your starting left guard. You have Wes Schweitzer as a backup guard. So all kinds of options here for Ron Rivera and Washington's offensive line coach, John Matsko, in terms of having legitimate depth. Washington has been plagued by not having legitimate offensive line depth in previous recent seasons. That's not the case here. Ron and his crew did such a good job this offseason of acquiring depth. And even like I said, with the releasing of Morgan Moses and Jaron Christian, Washington is still positioned to have quality depth along that offensive line. When it comes to the Washington football team's quarterbacks at training camp, Kyle Allen still not practicing fully due to him aggravating his surgically repaired left ankle now two Saturdays ago. And we on Monday had Taylor Heineke get banged up. He appeared to hurt a leg, uh, but then was back out there. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Monday, again, got asked about potentially bringing in another quarterback. No, we're fine where we are. You know, Taylor's moving around well, doing some really good things. You know, very, very pleased with his continued progress. Um, you know, obviously like how Fitz is really fitting in right now with our guys. Um, you know, kind of a little anxious getting Kyle back. You know, we want to get Kyle back out there and get him working. Uh, but, we, you know, we got, we got to continue with that. And Stevens, you know, Stevens progressing. He's a young guy. He's got a lot to learn. All right. Well, I mentioned Heineke getting banged up, however briefly, at Washington's training camp practice on Monday. That is the last thing that Heineke needed, another injury. Uh, His offseason was about becoming more durable, right? That's why I put on the 15 pounds. But your Taylor Heineke injury history in terms of his NFL career is undeniable. And I am a Heineke guy. I am a Heineke fan. But truth is truth. The guy has been banged up a bunch. September 2016, the Minnesota Vikings placed Heineke on their reserve non-football injury list. September 2017, the Vikings waived Heineke with an injury settlement. December 2017, Heineke made his NFL regular season debut in a Week 16 relief outing for the Houston Texans and suffered a concussion. December 2018, Heineke made his first NFL regular season start in Week 16 and suffered a season-ending left elbow injury. This past January, Heineke started and played great in Washington's 31-23 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild card round, but he got hurt, right? He suffered that AC joint separation in his left shoulder on that spectacular touchdown run, the third quarter, third and five, eight-yard shotgun scramble touchdown run. And then this past June, we learned that Heineke, during an OTA practice, caught an elbow above his left eye during an installation period, giving him a cut that required seven stitches and chipping a tooth. Now, that's more flukish than anything, but the guy's been like a magnet for injury so far in his NFL career. So again, the last thing that Taylor Heineke needed was to get hurt on Monday. Ron Rivera during his post-practice press conference on Heineke practicing through what happened to him. Well, that's always big, a guy that, you know, can shake things off, you know, and uh, I'll be honest with you, just watching him get bumped, I I didn't think that was, there was anything to it. Um, But, you know, getting back in the huddle when you shake things off, your teammates see it, uh, that helps your guys. Uh, So that was good for him. Yes, it was. Uh, You heard Ron earlier mention Steven Montez. So Montez has been throwing a good number of interceptions in these practices. Ron on Monday on Montez. The truth about it with Steven, and I tell Steven, he's got to stop trying to make the perfect play and just make the right play. You know, he's trying to do things that, that, you know, if if you're a three, four-year vet that's had success and understanding, you know, and you got to feel for those types of things, 
Um, those are the kind of things that you can do. When you don't, you don't have the kind of experience he has, stop trying to make the perfect play. The perfect play is score a touchdown in every play, and it's not going to happen. So you make the right play. If it calls to take, throw a check down, you throw a check down. If it calls to throw, you know, throw the slant, throw the slant. But we don't need you to, to make those home runs. And, and so for me right now, it, with Steven, it's letting him go out and learn, letting him make the mistakes and just hope he learns from those mistakes and we don't see that mistake over and over and over again. Because uh, there is a point where they get to the old thing about insanity. You know, it's, it's doing the same thing over and over, expecting something different to happen. Yeah, Ron was pretty blunt on Monday. You know, he brought it when it came to his feelings about the preseason, brought it when it came to uh, what he's thinking about Steven Montez's interceptions in these training camp practices. So as for Ryan Fitzpatrick, something that came up on Monday was Fitzpatrick's rapport with Adam Humphreys. Uh, the two know each other well. Humphreys was signed by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers as an undrafted free agent out of Clemson in 2015. Humphreys played for the Bucs from 2015 through 2018, including in 2017 and 2018 with Ryan Fitzpatrick. He played in 14 games with 10 starts for the Bucs over those two seasons. And those two seasons, very interestingly, have been Humphreys' two best NFL seasons. 2017 Humphreys, over 16 regular season games, had 61 receptions for 631 yards and a touchdown on 83 targets. 2018 Humphreys, over 16 regular season games, had 76 receptions for 816 yards and five touchdowns on 105 targets. Ron on Monday was asked about the Fitzpatrick-Humphreys connection. Well, um, I'll say this. When you watch you know, what, what Fitz has done with some of the other guys, too, you do see that chemistry right away. You know, like he's got a great rapport right now with Terry. I like the, you know, how he's kind of gotten into that groove with him. I like the rapport you see that he has with Logan. Um, and, and then, you know, you watch some of the things that, that, that he's done with Cam Sims and, and stuff. Uh, the backs, he's got a great sense of feel for, for the backs. But I think the thing with Adam, and, and, and again, it's understanding what the situation is. Situational football dictates a lot. Third and short, third and medium. You know, the tendency is to work a little bit more inside, work the slot a little bit. That's where you do see the chemistry, and, and that's important. You know, um, it's, it, it's a good thing that they, they know each other, they understand each other, because now you get into a game and, and you just know that he has a good feel that he trusts him a lot. All right, so we mentioned uh, Kyle Allen, mentioned Taylor Heineke. Also regarding Washington injuries at training camp, I mentioned the Curtis Samuel news in the opening segment. This was big on Monday. Uh, The Washington football team placing Curtis Samuel from the reserve COVID-19 list back onto the active, physically unable to perform list. So unfortunately, we're not anticipating Curtis Samuel finally practicing for the first time in training camp, but at least he is off now that reserve COVID-19 list. Washington on day one of training camp, July 27th, put Samuel on the active, physically unable to perform list due to a groin injury that kept him from practicing during Washington's mandatory minicamp back in June. Then on July 29th, Washington put Samuel on the reserve COVID-19 list. And then finally on Monday, August 9th, Washington removed Samuel from the reserve COVID-19 list and put him back on the active, physically unable to perform list. So new day, new list for Curtis Samuel, but he's still out in terms of not practicing. Uh, Also, another big free agent signing for Washington in March, William Jackson III. He's been nursing a leg ailment, uh, what Ron Rivera has described as a Charlie horse. Uh, Matt Ioannidis continues to be brought along very slowly off his time on the reserve COVID-19 list. And Samis Reyes back practicing on Sunday and Monday off tweaking a knee. Now, there was something else that came up at Ron Rivera's post-training camp practice press conference on Monday. It is something that I have been wanting to discuss with you. I will discuss that with you after this. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We continue with the Washington football team conversation. No podcast or show talks Washington football team like this podcast last show. If you know someone who is looking for more Washington football team content, better Washington football team content, let that person know about the Al Galdi podcast. New episode out each weekday, Monday through Friday by 5 a.m. No other podcast like it. So Ron Rivera at his post-training camp practice press conference on Monday was asked about how big of a jump that Washington's defense can make in year two under him and Jack Del Rio. Take a listen. Well, I think they can make a big jump. Um, I think a big part of it is, is first of all, getting everybody to buy in and how to do it, the way that we want things done. I think that's very important. And, and once guys get a feel for, you know, we, we don't need one guy conquering and winning and, and destroying everybody. We need everybody to be disciplined, do your jobs, and make the plays you're supposed to. The plays will come to the guys. That's the thing they have to understand. The play comes to you, then you got to make it. And, and that's where we are now. I think the discipline part of it is really big for us. Um, but the thing that I, I really think that you see now is they're playing faster. They're communicating better. That's the important thing because once that happens, uh, playing fast is, is at an optimum because that's when you make plays. All right, so this issue of Washington's defense making a big jump this coming season of having made a gigantic jump last season. I have chronicled the amazing improvement authored by Washington's defense last season. We don't have to go through every stat. Just understand that Washington in the 2019 regular season was 27th out of 32 NFL teams in total defense per football outsiders DVOA metric. Washington in the 2020 regular season third in the NFL in total defense per DVOA, 27th in 2019, third in 2020. That right there captures the incredible improvement made by Washington's defense from the 2019 season to the 2020 season. Now, a lot has been made this offseason of how Washington's much improved defense in the 2020 season was good, but not great. And the two things that have come up the most in this regard have been Washington's opposing quarterbacks last season and what happened to Washington last postseason. So Washington last regular season benefited from playing a number of bad quarterbacks. That's undeniable. I mean, among the quarterbacks who Washington faced last regular season, Carson Wentz, Andy Dalton, and then Ben DiNucci, uh, Ryan Finley in place of the injured Joe Burrow, Andy Dalton again, Nick Mullins, Nate Sudfeld in place of the bench Jalen Hurts. Washington was gifted quite a run of bad quarterbacks as last season went on. Also, 
Washington's defense got carved up by the eventual Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and the wild card round. Washington, in its 31-23 loss to the Bucs at FedEx Field on Super Wild Card Weekend, saw the defense not be so super. Uh, Washington allowed the Bucs to score 31 points, go 6-14 of 14 on third downs, allowed Tom Brady to average 9.53 yards per pass attempt, 381 yards on 40 pass attempts, and Brady had two touchdown passes versus no interceptions. And Washington in that game did not stop the run. The Bucks ran all over Washington in that game. Bucks running backs Leonard Fournette and Keyshawn Vaughn and Bucks receivers Antonio Brown and Scotty Miller combined for 26 carries for 144 yards and a touchdown. That's 5.54 yards per carry. So yes, there is room for improvement for Washington's defense this coming season, especially considering the murderer's row of opposing quarterbacks that Washington is set to face. And obviously this can change and who knows who ends up having a good season versus who ends up having an underwhelming season. But you look at Washington's schedule, it is daunting in terms of the opposing quarterbacks. Justin Herbert, Josh Allen, Matt Ryan, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Russell Wilson, Derek Carr, Dak Prescott twice in three weeks in December. You get the idea. Now, I believe that Washington's defense this coming season could be better and yet still give stuff up. So in other words, the defense could be better, but statistically the defense could be worse just because you're facing better quarterbacks. I also believe that something that doesn't get nearly enough attention is the reality of defense in today's NFL. The reality of defense in this modern pass-happy NFL. And that reality is the following. Truly dominant defense is perhaps no longer possible. I really do think that we need to recalibrate what we consider to be great defense. You see, Washington, relative to the rest of the NFL, was excellent defensively last season. That's irrefutable, okay? That's one of the reasons why I use something like Football Outsiders DVOA metric. Defense adjusted value over average. You're looking at things in a relative fashion. It does you no good to take raw numbers from 2021 and compare those raw numbers to what happened in, you know, 1991. It's worthless. The NFL has changed too much to be able to make a comparison like that. You have to look at defense relative to the rest of the NFL. If you're going to judge defenses in 2021 with, you know, the 1985 Chicago Bears defense in mind, I mean, knock yourself out, but that was a much different NFL. Context is everything. Understand the NFL right now. The 2020 NFL regular season featured passing like never before. The NFL as a whole in the 2020 regular season set records for, among many things, highest completion percentage, 65.2. So when you added up every pass thrown, in the NFL last regular season, you came out with an overall league completion percentage of 65.2 all-time record. You came out with the lowest interception percentage of all time, 2.2. You came out with the highest passer rating of all time, 93.6. And to go advanced, you came out with the highest adjusted net yards per pass attempt of all time, 6.4. Adjusted net yards per pass attempt is simply a more sophisticated version of yards per pass attempt. Adjusted net yards per pass attempt incorporates passing yardage, sacks, touchdowns, and interceptions. But records were set in all of these major categories in terms of overall NFL passing 
last regular season. To put that passer rating into perspective, again, the league passer rating for last regular season was 93.6. In the 2010 NFL regular season, and 2010 wasn't that long ago, right? In the 2010 NFL regular season, Joe Flacco of the Baltimore Ravens was seventh in the NFL with a passer rating of 93.6. So what was good enough to be seventh in the NFL in 2010 was league average in 2020. Like that tells you everything you need to know in terms of where we are when it comes to passing in the NFL. So you have to consider this when you judge defenses in this modern NFL. Even great defenses give stuff up. And consider the 2020 season during which, yes, Washington gave stuff up. And not just to Tom Brady in the playoffs, but the Pittsburgh Steelers, okay? So the Steelers in the 2020 regular season were number one in the NFL in total defense per DVOA. That same Steelers defense got carved up by who? Alex Smith and Washington's passing game in Washington's 23-17 win at the Steelers in week 13. Alex in the second half of that game was terrific. 16 to 24 for 174 yards, a touchdown, no interceptions. He took no sacks. He led a Washington offense that went 4-9 on third downs. And yes, it is worth pointing out that the Steelers defense did deal with some key injuries in that game. Corner Steven Nelson was inactive due to a knee injury. Uh, The Steelers' other top corner, Joe Hayden, suffered a concussion in the game. Uh, Steelers linebacker Robert Spillane suffered a knee injury in the game. But still, you're talking about what was the worst passing offense in the NFL last regular season, that of the Washington football team. Washington's passing offense last regular season was dead last in the NFL per DVOA. And yet that passing offense carved up the Steelers in the second half of Washington's win at the Steelers in week 13. And it's not like Washington's win at the Steelers in week 13 of the 2020 season. It was the only game in which the Steelers' great defense got got. Long before that game, you know, long before the collapse of the Steelers' 2020 season was a 28-24 Steelers win at the Baltimore Ravens in week eight. The Steelers won that game despite the Ravens rushing for 265 yards and a touchdown on just 47 carries. 5.64 yards per carry. So this great Steelers defense, again, number one in the NFL last regular season in DVOA, got got multiple times last season. How about the New Orleans Saints? You know, the Saints in the 2020 regular season were number two in the NFL in total defense per DVOA, and yet they got got by good quarterbacks multiple times. The Saints in a 37-30 home loss to the Green Bay Packers in week three allowed Aaron Rodgers to have three touchdown passes versus no interceptions, an average 8.84 yards per pass attempt. The Saints in a 30-27 overtime win over the Los Angeles Chargers on Monday Night Football in Week 5 allowed Justin Herbert to have four touchdown passes versus no interceptions and average 7.76 yards per pass attempt. Saints, really good defense last season, and yet the Saints got got. Heck, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the 2020 regular season, number five in the NFL in total defense per DVOA. And yet they got got by who? Taylor Heineke, right? In Washington's wild card loss to the Bucs at FedEx Field. And yes, the Bucs were without stud linebacker Devin White, but Heineke was the starting quarterback. Heineke was making just his second career NFL start in that game, was making his first NFL start since December 23rd, 2018. 
and Washington pass catchers were guilty of five drops in that game, including four first half drops. So, you know, you can make all the excuses you want for the Bucs. I mean, Devin White has been elevated to, you know, Dick Butkus status with the way some of these Heineke bashers have uh, modified the telling of history with that game back in January. But this great Buccaneers defense, right? Todd Bowles, defensive coordinator, everything else. Uh, that defense got got by Taylor Heineke and the league worst Washington football team passing game. So yeah, my point isn't that Washington's defense was perfect last season or that Washington's defense was an all-time great defense last season. My point is we have to reset how we evaluate defense in the NFL in 2021. It's not 1985 anymore. It's not 1995 anymore. It's not 2005 anymore. Heck, it's not 2015 anymore. The league keeps evolving into more and more of a passing league, into more and more of an offensive-minded league, and that's the prism through which Washington's defense should be viewed. I want you to take a listen to something. Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus. I've had him on the podcast multiple times. So here he was in my most recent conversation with him. This is from episode 68 of the pod. And we got into this idea of, is truly dominant defense still possible in today's NFL? Yeah, I think unless something changes, you know, unless the rules swing back in some direction or they start getting more aggressive with holding calls and redress the balance with penalties or whatever it is, if things stay the same, compared to what they were you know, last season, I just don't think a defense is really capable of that level of dominance anymore. Yeah, and understand, we're not saying, hey, great defense is no longer possible in the NFL. We're not saying, hey, if you're an NFL defense, you might as well tap out here because you have no chance. What we are saying is you got to adjust what you consider to be great defense now because of the way that NFL offense has evolved. And so when we talk about, say, over the last, you know, 20 years or so, right, the great NFL defenses, 2000 Baltimore Ravens, 2002 Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 2013 Seattle Seahawks, 2015 Denver Broncos, I'm not sure that we're going to be seeing a defense along the lines of those great defenses anytime soon. Because as I just outlined, even the best defenses of last NFL season got got and got got in some pretty bad ways. And so when it comes to the Washington football team, which, yes, did give some stuff up last season, like every other defense in the NFL, don't be stunned if Washington's defense this season gives some stuff up. But just because Washington's defense gives some stuff up this coming season doesn't mean that the defense isn't a very good defense, maybe even a great defense, maybe even an excellent defense, maybe even an elite defense as compared to the rest of the NFL. All right, so it has been a wild last two weeks for the Wizards. Uh, Becoming official this past Friday night was the five-team mega deal that included the Wizards acquiring Spencer Dinwiddie and trading away Russell Westbrook. We actually had the Dinwiddie introductory press conference on Monday evening. We had the Wizards taking three-point specialist Corey Kispert of Gonzaga in the first round of the 2021 NBA draft. We have seen the Wizards re-sign Haul Neto, but also lose a bunch of guys in free agency. Oh, by the way, the Wizards have a new head coach in Wes Unsell Jr. And oh, by the way, looming over all of this is the Bradley Beal situation. Here to help us make sense of everything is Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington. Chase, an eventful last few weeks, my friend. How are you? 
I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, the dust is kind of settling. I thought we were going to continue to be busy uh, throughout the summer league. And then, of course, the Wizards had a little hiccup early on. Yes, uh, Wizards-like things still happening, even with the NBA season long ago over. So with the five-team trade, obviously a big move by the Wizards this offseason. Is that the big move of the Wizards offseason? Or could you see some other major move by the Wizards taking place? I think they still have uh, the potential to make more moves, but I don't know if anything will end up being bigger than that. A five-team trade that uh, ends up involving Russell Westbrook, uh, the Lakers, um, all these players coming in, the Wizards getting Spencer Dinwiddie. Um, I, I don't know if there will be anything uh, that that uh, compares to that in terms of the blockbuster nature of it, um, but certainly it was big, and the Wizards are left with a roster that I think is intriguing. It has a lot of flexibility. I think it could be an above-average defensive team. I think it has to has a chance to be a much better shooting team than they were. They were one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the league, uh, and they're just a lot deeper. You know, they can probably run out a rotation that's nine or ten players deep. I don't know the last time that you could have said that about this team. I think the question will be, um, what is their ceiling now? Because uh, you know, it may sound reductive, but they did go from two stars to one. Now they have one star and a bunch of depth. Their star is good. Uh, Bradley Beal, but generally you need more than that to, to truly contend in the NBA, and especially even in the Eastern Conference now uh, with how good it is at the top. So I don't know how much better the Wizards are uh, in the short term than they were, uh, but I think they have more potential to be better in the long term, depending on what they do with the new options and flexibility that they now have. So along the lines of this depth approach, you wrote a really good piece about that, this apparent change in philosophy for the Wizards, right? Them going from a top-heavy approach to the roster to now this approach of trying to be super deep. Do you think the depth approach is a viable approach? I mean, we all know, right? NBA history is filled with lessons of, hey, you need multiple superstars to win an NBA title. Is there something to just trying to out-depth people, or is that not really a thing in the NBA? I think it raises your floor for sure. I think the Wizards uh, have a really good chance of making the playoffs next year. But I would imagine, you know, you get into a playoff series with Brooklyn, Milwaukee uh, or Philadelphia and just the the lack of quantity of stars would become apparent. Now, they needed more depth. There's no question. They needed more shooting. Uh, They needed to continue to improve their defense. Uh, But I think moving forward, if they do want to build a contender, uh, for the first time in, in decades, literally, for this team, then they're going to have to go out and get some stars. Um, I, I wrote in that article that if it did work out in sort of a best-case scenario, I think it would look like what the Atlanta Hawks were last year, where they had Trey Young. Um, he was the the one player, the star slash superstar, who the straw that stirs the drink. Uh, he wasn't even an all-star last year, actually. He was left off the roster, uh, which was a major snub in hindsight. But it was basically him and a lot of depth. They were good defensively. But they had a lot of guys who maybe weren't stars but could create their own shots. I think the Wizards have a few more guys like that. Uh, you know, th- in this day and age, they're called shot makers. They didn't have very many guys like that last year. Um, so I think that would be a best-case scenario. Um, I pr- feel pretty confident that they'll get to the playoffs because, like I said, I think their floor is higher. Um, but I think at it, some point, if they want to close the gap and, and join that upper echelon, and Atlanta might be in that upper echelon even without a second all-star because – they have a better young core of players or a more established young core. Like DeAndre Hunter didn't even play for them really in the in the playoffs, and he's a really good young player, former fourth overall pick. Uh, John Collins has developed into a guy who just got $25 million a year. He's a borderline all-star. The Rui Hachimuras and Denny Avdias and Daniel Gaffords, they're not quite there yet, 
Uh, so I think that's how, if they roll out this roster going into next season, I think that's what will determine their ceiling is how those young guys with upside, um, how much they can tap into that uh, in the short term, because all those guys have pretty high ceilings. But, you know, right now it's, it's for the most part, just potential. So, of course, with all of this is Bradley Beal. When it comes to Beal, what do you think that the Wizards think or maybe have been told? Obviously, they haven't traded him this offseason. It doesn't feel like they're going to be trading him this offseason. He can sign another extension come this October. He also can opt out of his contract next offseason. Do you think the Wizards feel certain that he'll be with them beyond this coming season? Do you think that the Wizards still don't know but just have opted not to trade him this offseason? I think they're more confident than they were just a few weeks ago. You know, when uh, free agency was looming and the draft was approaching um, and there were those reports out there about Bradley Beal mulling his future, um, those were absolutely legitimate. Like, I looked into it. I heard a lot of the same things. He was not pleased with how the coaching search went. Um, You know, he was really sort of looking at the future of the franchise and wondering how they could get to where he wants to be. Um, I think he's cooled off a little bit on that. He didn't end up requesting a trade, but it was definitely more serious of a threat than previous rumors were. But Bradley Beal, um, you know, this might have been more serious, but I, I don't know ultimately how serious it was because he was uh, he backed away from that and they made a bunch of moves and he seems to be happy with the, the direction they're heading. And I think ultimately, um, you know, I made this point in the article when I reported some of this stuff out, confirming others and adding to it. Uh, you know, the Wizards just have a really strong track record keeping Bradley Beal happy and other players happy. I mean, it's like the one thing that they've been incredibly good at. I mean, comparative to the rest of the league, like they can keep their own guys um, and it helps that you can offer a lot more money than other teams can. I don't know what the extension um, that Bradley Beal would ultimately sign would look like. You know, last time we went through this process two years ago, it proved to be very unpredictable. A lot of us thought that he wasn't going to sign it because he could have waited to sign more money. None of us really expected a one plus one type deal. So maybe there could be something similar or something similarly creative that's in the cards where, you know, maybe he signs on for a short uh, period of time. Um, But ultimately, what you have to keep in mind is the Wizards can pay him a lot more money than other teams can. If he goes into the following free agency and opts out, um, you know, projections have him making 45, 50 million less than he would make with the Wizards. Um, So that has to be considered. Ultimately, you know, loyalty is probably not the proper word because you're talking about tens of millions of dollars that you can offer someone that other teams can't. Um, But I would also point out that he just turned 28 in June. And as much as he may be thinking more in the terms of his legacy and wanting to win, he's not at where Damian Lillard is. He's not at where some of these guys have been where, you know, they get into their 30s and they wonder how much of my prime do I have left? Um, I think I I could totally see a scenario where he signs a contract. Maybe he even signs the five-year deal next offseason, which is going to be worth like $250 million, somewhere in that range. And then a year later kind of arrives at this point. You can take the money and then, you know, at age 30, decide you want out and get the money and still have enough time to play for a contender. So I, I don't know if we're quite there yet where he would force his way out. And that's really the only way that the Wizards would trade him is if he asked if he actually took that step and asked for a trade out because they see him within the context of their franchise history and understand that he's one of the best players they've had in a long time and letting him go as much as they could get back it would take um, a lot of effort and, and some luck to find a guy just as good. We're talking with Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington. That's really interesting what you said about Beal not being happy with the coaching search. I mean, I like Wes Unsell Jr. a lot. I'm glad that's who ended up getting the job. What didn't Beal like about that process? So what I was told is that he he 
kind of wanted someone with more experience. Um, the Athletic reported that he wanted uh, Sam Cassell. Um, you know, last time I was on your show, we were talking about why Sam Cassell wasn't a very serious candidate. And it, the timing was so unfortunate because I think he interviewed the next day and I felt kind of like a jerk about it. <laughs> the whole conversation we had, obviously, that was uh, a true report that I put out there. But, you know, we didn't really know why. And um, ultimately, Bradley Beal, it's, it's not surprising that he he liked Sam Cassell. Um, I heard that he was hoping for someone with more experience so that they could kind of hit the ground running. But I, I think he'll be fine with Wes Unsell Jr. I, I really think Wes Unsell Jr., if there are any critics out there within the organization and without, I think he's going to win them over. You know, we talked about experience versus inexperience and how when they had Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, it would have made sense to go with someone for experience, need someone to hit the ground running. But he's got a great resume for someone who hasn't been a head coach before. Um, you know, the associate head coach for the Denver Nuggets, ties to the franchise, ties to the city, paid his dues, uh, smart guy, great communicator. I, I think he's a very likable guy, and I'm not really concerned about that moving forward. I think um, Bradley Beal just during the uh, process uh, maybe wanted to be consulted a little more and maybe had different ideas of what he wanted uh, for that role. Um, but ultimately, I think they found a good candidate that Bradley Beal will be just fine playing for moving forward. With Russell Westbrook being traded to the Lakers, we know that he asked to be traded. Ted Leonsis now has confirmed that. Do you think that this is one of these cases in which Westbrook asked to be traded and the Wizards really didn't want to trade him? Or do you think this is one of these situations in which Westbrook asked to be traded and the Wizards were only too happy to oblige to get that contract off the books? What do you think internally the true feeling was from the Wizards when Westbrook said, hey, can you please deal me to the Lakers? I mean, I'll defer to what uh, Ted Leonsis said. I think the the tone you could glean from those quotes was pretty obvious that they didn't want to trade him. I think their plan going into this offseason was to build around them, which is something that I uh, thought would have been sensible. You know, you had two stars. They, they're playing at a, a pretty high level. You know, maybe you could add to that and 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 see what happens. They haven't really done that. They haven't really taken that, that risky step that I've been kind of advocating for them to do. Um, but it seems like Russell Westbrook certainly forced their hand. That's what I gleaned from those quotes from Ted Leonsis. That, and ultimately, it's his call, right? Uh, once Russell Westbrook made the request, and you know, different reports have kind of categorized it differently, whether it was a firm request or not. Um, we all know how these things generally go. If a star wants out, uh, you kind of need to find them a new home. Um, but it's not surprising that Ted Leonsis would feel that way. You know, he's. He's uh, a guy who everything he said on the record about what he believes in building an NBA team is continuity and moving forward. And obviously, Russell Westbrook, what I, I imagine was a boon for the franchise, uh, you know, that brought him to the playoffs for the first time in three years. There was positive momentum, getting, you know, ratings and interest up and all that sort of stuff. I'm sure um, it, he was he was a great player to have if you were the owner of a team. Um, but it was an opp opportunity for Russell Westbrook to go chase the championship in his hometown. Um, so I, I felt like the timing just didn't work in their favor. But absolutely, my takeaway from that was they didn't want to go down this road and their hand was forced to agree and they've created some flexibility, but it wasn't really their original intention. I talked about this on Monday's installment of the podcast. So I saw what NBA insider Mark Stein tweeted over the weekend, essentially saying that LeBron James and Anthony Davis recruited Westbrook to ask to be traded to the Lakers. I think it's ridiculous in the NBA that teams are not allowed to tamper, but players are. And especially if the Wizards wanted to keep Russell Westbrook, how is that fair? How is that right that it's just fine that LeBron and AD were able to talk to Russell and convince him or at least tell him, hey, 
there's a spot here for you on the Lakers. Like, that doesn't seem very healthy for the NBA, and that doesn't seem very fair to the Wizards that something like that can take place. Yeah, it was interesting to read Mark Stein's report on that because he said that the league essentially sees a a difference between when players do it and teams do it. It's like they can't control all the players from doing that. Um, And that just seems like kind of a cop-out, like – um, you're right. I mean, it's it's still tampering. It, it, just because front offices aren't doing it doesn't mean it isn't tampering. And basically, they had the Wizards, uh, who couldn't do much about it, um, lose out because LeBron James and Anthony Davis made a pitch. So um, certainly, if they wanted to keep Russell Westbrook, then they did kind of get screwed by that. Um, it's unfortunate. I don't know what the league could do. Um, you know, it pro- wh- whether they should police it or not, it, I do. I could see why that's difficult to do. Uh, there's a lot of players and just a lot of conversations that they can have, um, you know, in different settings. Um, but yeah, certainly it, it kind of blew up the Wizards' plans as we understand them. Um, and it, it's just interesting to kind of hear Mark Stein put out that difference um, because I guess that's just the way it is, and the Wizards have to deal with it. Yeah, to say nothing of what would stop Lakers management from telling LeBron and AD, hey, you talk to Russ because we can't, and you let him know that we want to trade for him. Like, technically, the team didn't do it. These players did it. But if the players did it at the behest of the team, then, you know, what exactly is the difference there? I do have to say this, and, you know, it's tricky right now with the Wizards because they may not be that much better off than they were a season ago. They may be worse off. But I think about the albatross that was that John Wall Supermax contract extension And to me, I think Tommy Shepard deserves a lot of credit here for what he ultimately did with that. That was one of the worst contracts in sports, right? And what Shepard has essentially done, and I know it's not as simple as this because there were other assets involved, but Shepard turned Wall and a protected first round pick into one season of Russell Westbrook. And now all these players, Spencer Dinwiddie, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Montrez Harrell, Kyle Kuzma, Aaron Holiday, Isaiah Todd. Am I wrong in praising Tommy Shepard for doing a good job, ultimately, with a very tough situation, the John Wall Supermax extension. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, when that happened, when he, uh, when John Wall, who, by the way, was already out long-term with the injury and fell in his house and ruptured his Achilles, um, and you tie that with the Supermax contract, I, I described it at the time as one of the biggest roster-building obstacles in NBA history. Um, you know, in recent history, I, I, one of the few things that I think could compare to it or when the Brooklyn Nets, the fallout of that trade, when they traded for Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and were left with nothing. Meanwhile, Boston had all their top draft picks. And, it, you know, they were able to overcome that because Sean Marks did a brilliant job as a, an executive. They actually passed the Celtics this past season, essentially. Um, and the Celtics obviously blew everything up. But it was similar. I mean, it's 35% of the salary cap. It's a, a player whose game was predicated on speed in a lot of different ways. And one of the most devastating injuries that an athlete can have. So that was the starting point. That was the first thing that uh, Tommy Shepard had to deal with, essentially, as a GM. And he he got through one season as as John Wall uh, recovered from that injury and then was able to trade him and salvage it it initially with the value of Russell Westbrook. Obviously, you attach a first-round pick. But now when you look at it in totality, just merely getting out from under that contract and, and having flexibility on your salary cap is a feat. Now, all the players they got back, obviously they didn't get anyone back at this point who is a star or is going to be a major difference maker or who's going to turn them into a contender. Um, but just not having that contract on the books allows you to spread the money around. 
Um, you, you, you don't have just other things that come in that situation, you know, John Wall being the franchise player and, and maybe having some entitlement that comes with that or just expectations of treatment, um, you know, not having um, just the injury and, and, and a ball dominant point guard to, to deal with when he comes back. Um, so there's a lot of different things that I think need to be praised about uh, that situation. Um, now it's almost like they can start over. They're trying to obviously do a lot of things at once, but in that specific regard, they can start over. And I, I didn't think that they would be able to pull it off to this extent uh, in this short of a period of time. I think when the injury happened, it, uh, a lot of us were probably resigned to the fact that they would have to deal with it for quite a while. And he never even set foot on an NBA floor in a Wizards uniform again. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's funny with big contracts in the NBA, you think you're doomed, but there are ways out of them. I mean, the Wizards got out from underneath the Jawan Howard contract, got out from underneath of the Gilbert Arenas contract, and ultimately got out from underneath of the John Wall contract. So if nothing else, our franchise has been able to do that. Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie. So he's coming off a partially torn right ACL, but he was an elite scorer just two seasons ago. What do you think the Wizards have in Dinwiddie? I think they have probably uh, a league average point guard when healthy. I mean, there's a lot of good point guards in the league. Um, You know, as long as he can come back from that ACL injury uh, just fine, then um, I think he'll be a great addition to the team. And there'll be a pretty good balance in what they have offensively. And he can also provide some value defensively. He also tore his other ACL in college, so he has been through this rehab before. Um, but you know, it's going to be important that he has that mobility because his game is entirely predicated on getting to the rim. Uh, two years ago, the last season he was healthy, he was ninth in the NBA in drives per game. Um, he was pretty efficient once he got to the rim. Uh, Bradley Beal's also good at, at getting to the rim and they're trying to surround those guys with shooters. So I think it's important that you have a point guard who can break down the defense and sort of rotate the defense and create open shots, uh, for other guys. So, um, I think, the, the injury is one question mark. And then his shooting percentages, you know, his his effective field goal percentage since he entered the league is basically identical to Russell Westbrook. So basically you're bringing in a guy at half the price who does similar things, isn't as good, isn't going to get you as many assists or rebounds. Um, and but you hope is better defensively. Um, and also you would hope uh, doesn't turn the ball over as much. So I think in some de- in some ways, a similar element to Russell Westbrook kind of uh, head down, attack the rim on hopefully driving kick. Uh, John Wall was like that too. And just most importantly, the fact that he's coming in at less than half of the the money that Russell Westbrook was making. Cause I think Dinwiddie's contract looks like it's going to start around 17 or 18 million. Um, you know, Russ, Westbrook was on the books for a supermax at like 44 million. So it's a lot more money that you can spread around. Um, as long as he's healthy, I think he'll, he'll, who uh, compliment Bradley Beal pretty well as a guy who gets to the rim and is also bigger and can take on tougher defensive assignments. Uh, you know, he was with the Brooklyn Nets before they attracted Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and all those guys uh, in free agency. And part of the reason that people believe they were able to attract them is because they were an overachieving team that had this sort of hardworking blue collar mentality. They played defense. Uh, they punched above their weight. And Spencer did when he kind of embodied that as a second round pick. Uh, who was a good defender and a scrappy offensive player who developed into a 20-point scorer and now a guy who, who made 50, 60 million on a contract. So um, that's the kind of culture that the Wizards uh, covet. And as long as he's healthy, I think it should be a good fit for them. The Wizards in free agency have re-signed Hole Neto, but gone for the Wizards in free agency are Is Smith, Robin Lopez, and Alex Len. Should the Wizards regret losing any of those guys? 
Um, that's a good question. I, I, I think Robin Lopez uh, is one guy that I would wonder about. You know, Ismith, I like him a lot. Um, he battled some injuries last year. Once he came back, he proved his value. Alex Lynn was a tremendous midseason pickup considering he had passed through waivers. He came in and helped them transform their defense by altering shots. But I think those guys are replaceable. I think, uh, you know, Aaron Holiday, for instance, replacing um, Ish Smith could give you a little more upside and better defense and better shooting. Um, you know, Montrez Harrell, I guess, has replaced Alex Lynn, and he's a better rebounder, um, a high-effort guy, uh, just gives you a higher ceiling. He can also score. Uh, you know, a couple years ago, he was a 19-point scorer for the Clippers. But Robin Lopez was their most consistent, one of their most consistent players last year, right? He led them in games played. There were times where he was one of their best offensive players. And I just think there was such a difference defensively uh, from what they had had previously when he was out there um, that they're just going to have to make sure that they can recreate that with Daniel Gafford and others. Um, you know, Thomas Bryant's coming back from a similar in injury to Spencer Dinwiddie. And Thomas Bryant is a fantastic offensive player, underrated offensive player, led the league in field goal percentage a few years back, set a franchise record, shoots 40% from three. But at the end of the day, he anchored two of the worst defenses in NBA history. So if you're going to have him back out there, um, you got to make sure that that doesn't happen again because they saw how difficult it was to win when their defense was literally historically bad. Um, so I, I think that's going to be a, a big question mark. Uh, if Thomas Bryant's playing a lot of minutes, um, will he, do you have enough structure around him to, to prevent that from happening again? Because Robin Lopez uh, made a major difference in that regard. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, one more for you. You mentioned Thomas Bryant's three-point shooting. So the Wizards were not a great three-point shooting team last year. But if Bryant comes back healthy, you've drafted Corey Kispert. I love that pick, by the way. That guy was a marksman at Gonzaga. You know, you do have some new guys here who at least historically have shot the three well. Contavious Caldwell-Pope, good three-point shooter. Aaron Holiday, to whatever extent he plays, has shot the three well. Maybe Davies Bertans goes back to the guy we saw two years ago. It feels, Chase, like the Wizards could be back to being a very good three-point shooting team this season. How do you view the Wizards in that way? Yeah, I think they were so – they struggled so much last year, and you are going to have Dinwiddie in the lineup um, – and, you know, Rui and, and Denny and Daniel Gafford, they have a bunch of guys who aren't threats from three-point range, but they also now have a lot of guys who are. So I think they have a chance to probably be like league average, which would be a pretty big improvement from where they were last year. Um, but you, I, I'm interested to see how Davis Bertans, who still shot close to 40% with good volume last year, the numbers were okay. If he can get back to being a 41%, 42% guy now that he's got um, other players on the court that are going to draw the defense out and theoretically give him more space. I think it really affected him when other teams only really had to worry about him on the three-point line. The same goes for Bradley Beal. He shot a career-low percentage from three last year, 34%. So maybe more threats from long range can help him. Um, so I think they could be league average. Uh, KCP, I think, is going to make a big difference in that regard. Um, Kispert, I wonder about, though. You know, I was looking at um, rookie three-point shooting numbers. In the last 10 years, only eight guys have shot over 40% who had enough attempts to qualify. So it's a little bit difficult to step right on an NBA floor and be like an elite three-point shooter. Joe Harris is a guy who he's been compared to, and he didn't really become a 40% three-point shooter till like year four or year five. He was like 26. Now, he was a second-round pick. He didn't have the same pedigree, but he was also a four-year player uh, in college. So I think the expectations for Kispert – Year one, maybe need to need to be set a little bit low. Long term, I think he could be one of the best three-point shooters in the league. Um, but it's really going to be kind of a group effort. And if 
a collection of these guys can shoot well from three. Thomas Bryant coming back, as you mentioned, uh, then it could raise the level for everyone. Um, you know, Dobbs Bertans uh, shot close to 40 percent and he had very little help from three point range last year. So he could be better. Um, so I think they could be league average. They have a lot more depth um, if if not uh, high-end three-point shooters. Uh, Davis Bertans is still right now probably the only guy who you know, you'll see in the three-point contest next year, potentially. Yeah, it would be nice to if Beal got back to shooting the three well. He was a good three-point shooter not long ago, and his three-point shooting has just declined in recent seasons for whatever reason. Well, Chase, uh, always love talking to Wizards with you, man. As everyone listening probably knows, in case you don't, Chase Hughes is a must-read if you're a Wizards fan. Check him out on NBCSportsWashington.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Chase Hughes, NBCS. All the best, man. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's do it again. All right, so we did have significant news for the Capitals on Monday. They announced the re-signing of restricted free agent goaltender Ilya Samsonov, a one-year, $2 million contract. Uh, the Caps re-signing Samsonov, not surprising. Again, he was a restricted free agent. He actually last week decided not to file for arbitration. But the re-signing is notable in a few ways. One, Samsonov is expected to be the Caps' number one goaltender for this coming season. And two, this contract clearly says that the Caps are not prepared to commit to Samsonov long-term, nor should the Caps be prepared to commit to Samsonov long-term. The Caps need to see more. We need to see more as Capitals fans from Ilya Samsonov. This coming season, to me, is a big season for Samsonov. The Caps took Samsonov with the number 22 pick in the 2015 NHL draft. The job was essentially his for last season. I know that the Caps went into last season with this idea of Samsonov and Vitek Vanacek sharing goaltending duties, but if Samsonov had been more available and had been better, he would have been the guy, okay? It's always been viewed as him as the goaltender of the future, not Vitek Vanacek as the goaltender of the future. And the truth is, Samsonov had a very mixed 2020-2021 regular season, just in terms of his play. We'll get to the other stuff momentarily here, but one of the most telling things about the Capitals' regular season last season was that Samsonov finished 27th among qualified NHL goaltenders in goals against average, and Vitek Vanacek finished 28th among qualified NHL goaltenders and goals against average. That pretty much sums up the Caps goaltending last year. Now, each guy had his moments, but neither guy was overly impressive. And for a guy with supposedly as high of a ceiling as Samsonov possesses, you wanted to see more. And it was disappointing that we didn't see more from Samsonov last year. You know, Samsonov last regular season also finished just 40th among qualified NHL goaltenders in save percentage. I mean, these are basic goaltending stats, I'll grant you that. But Samsonov, 27th among qualified goaltenders in the NHL in goals against average, 40th among qualified goaltenders in the NHL in save percentage. Not good. And then, of course, there's all the other stuff with Ilya Samsonov. Let's just be honest about this. He has caused one headache after another for the Capitals over the last few seasons. So you go back to two seasons ago, Samsonov was unavailable for the restart to the Caps 2019 2020 season. The Caps on July 25th, 2020 announced that Samsonov, who had not taken part in any practice during training camp, had suffered an injury prior to camp and would not travel with the Caps to the Eastern Conference hub city of Toronto for the restart to the season. A report from Russia in August 2020 said that Samsonov had gotten hurt in an ATV accident in Russia. Then came this past season for Samsonov. He missed a ton of time in the 2020-2021 season due to two absences caused by COVID-19 protocols. First of all, he missed a big chunk of time early in the season due to having COVID-19. 
And look, this is not funny. Uh, Samsonov apparently struggled with COVID-19. Samsonov this past February 8th talked about how he had trouble breathing and walking while dealing with COVID-19. But if you remember the circumstances of all this, uh, Samsonov having COVID-19 came off he and three other Russians on the Capitals, Alex Ovechkin, Evgeny Kuznetsov, and Dmitry Orlov, violating the NHL's COVID-19 protocols to where the NHL this past January 20th fined the Caps $100,000 for player violations of the league's COVID-19 protocols. And then Samsonov missed the Caps' final five games of the regular season, and then the Caps' first two games of the postseason. The Caps' first two games in the five-game first-round series loss to the Boston Bruins in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And the first game of those seven games that Samsonov missed late in the season was due to team suspension. He and Kuznetsov were late to a team function. Then Samsonov was out due to COVID-19 protocols. And that helped to create a mess for the Capitals in net during this past postseason because Samsonov being out, coupled with Vanacek suffering a lower body injury in the first period of game one of the series against the Bruins, meant that Craig Anderson, who was in his age 39 season and had started just two games for the Caps in the regular season, ended up being the Caps' primary goaltender in game one and starting goaltender in game two. The Caps incredibly started three different goaltenders over the first three games of that series against the Bruins. Vanacek in game one, Anderson in game two, Samsonov in game three. And oh, by the way, Samsonov didn't exactly kill it during his time playing uh, for the Caps in that series against the Bruins. And then we actually had another controversy, or at least, you know, mini controversy, of the Caps not allowing Samsonov to participate in the 2021 International Ice Hockey Federation World Championship. Russia Hockey on May 25th announced that the Caps had not approved Samsonov to join Team Russia at the 2021 IIHF World Championship as Caps doctors had not cleared Samsonov. It just has felt for a few years now like there's always something going on with this guy. You know, Vanacek, whatever you want to say about him, lower ceiling than Samsonov, fine. But Vanacek is low maintenance. Samsonov, it feels like every five minutes, there's something happening with him. There's something that the Capitals have to deal with regarding him. And it's time for him to stop it with this stuff off the ice. And it's time for him to step up and be the franchise goaltender that he was drafted to be. Because Ilya Samsonov is a talented guy, okay? But he's got to start delivering on the ice. And I hope that happens this coming season. You know, I'm sympathetic to a point. I mean, like I said, he got COVID-19. He apparently struggled with COVID-19. So I'm not here to say like, hey, you know, uh, that's all on you. At the same time, though, remember, he got COVID-19 off a situation that resulted in the Capitals being fined $100,000. So it sure sounds like he and the uh, the rest of the four horsemen of Russians on the Capitals, Ovechkin, Kuznetsov, and Orlov, uh, were having a grand old time and violated NHL COVID-19 protocols. And so the Caps ended up being fined again $100,000. So Samsonov has got to be better. He's got to be more mature. And let's see him deliver on the ice. I mean, I hope that he does. But I think that contract that the Capitals signed Samsonov to on Monday says it all, okay? Because if the Capitals had really wanted to, they could have signed Samsonov to a longer-term deal than just a one-year, $2 million contract. The Capitals opted not to do that. They're not sure yet if they should believe in Samsonov. And the Capitals should not be sure of that. Nobody is sure of that. Big season coming up for Ilya Samsonov, and he will be in some kind of a timeshare with Vitek Vanacek, presumably, right? Because the Capitals this offseason have traded back for Vitek Vanacek. And one of the stranger things you'll ever see, July 21st, the Caps lost Vitek Vanacek in the expansion draft 
for the Seattle Kraken. But then a week later, July 28th, the Caps announced having traded a second round pick in the 2023 NHL draft to the Kraken for Vanacek. I mean, the Caps are right up against it with the NHL salary cap. So the Caps haven't had much room with which to maneuver in terms of saying, hey, why don't they get this goaltender or get that goaltender? It's kind of like, no, they got to stick with what they had last year. And uh, so that's what the Capitals are essentially doing here. But the Capitals very much need what they had last season to be better this coming season. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Wednesday's show, episode 120, the very latest from Washington football team training camp as we approach Thursday night's preseason opener at the New England Patriots. We'll have the Nationals and Orioles to talk about as well. Each team without a game on Monday, each team back in action beginning on Tuesday night. The Nats on Tuesday night to get a three-game series at the plummeting New York Mets. As bad as the Nats have been lately, the Mets have been worse. They've fallen from first to third in the National League East. You see, if you yourself aren't doing well, it always makes you feel better when someone else is doing worse. There you go. Uh, have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. No matter how I look at it, it you know, I still hate it. Hated it.